Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL podcast. Uh, I am John Bigelow from Security Solutions. I am here today with Kevin MacDonald, President of ASIAL, and John Galil, Vice President of ASIAL. Gentlemen, welcome to the show and good morning. Good morning, John. Thank you. Good morning. So today we are talking about building security industry capability and professionalism. So I guess the best place to start is, you know, why is a strong and professional security industry important for Australia? John, kick it off. Why do you think a strong industry is important for Australia? I think there's the significant role that the private security um, plays in keeping Australia safe, in keeping people safe, in keeping um, property safe and how we um, collaborate and work with emergency services such as police. Um, we, we have a workforce of about 120,000 um, people in the private security sector and that workforce is, is double that of the police um, police force. That gives us um, more opportunities to be in more places, to see more things, to hear more things um, and then to um, share that information, that vital information um, with the police so they can make better informed decisions. Um, I think on the electronic side of the industry, if you look across Australia, there's there's hundreds of um, security systems, be them alarm systems, CCTV systems, access control systems being installed um, every, every week. Now, for every system that's installed, um, it does one of two things. It gives us either better crime prevention um, or it gives us better um, forensic analysis information after the event. Um, with, with all that said, the, the private security is privileged to um, information generally not available to the public. Uh, individuals work in the industry are, are the difference between um, making uh, property or people safe um, or, or not. And that's why it's important for the private security industry, um, and I mean companies and individuals, um, must not only adhere to a clean criminal record, um, also ensure they have high professional, ethical and moral standards to keep that professional professionalism um, high. Sure. Kevin, why do you believe it's important to have a strong and professional industry for Australia? Well, I agree with everything that John said then. Um, from my, my view, running on from that, is that the industry has grown over the years. We are very highly represented. The, the normal mum and dad's walking down the street feel safe seeing a security officer in a location. Um, more and more the police are agreeing and understanding that we are part of the solution, not part of the problem. And as, as there's been more involvement with the key stakeholders, it's, Im it's imperative upon us to be able to deliver at the level that our stakeholders expect from us. And that's, that's, to me, that's one of the keys. We've got to have that professionalism. We've got to put our governance in place and um, ensure our relationships continue to grow and continue to provide that level of safety and security to Australia. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it, it seems pretty obvious to me insofar as when you look at the role of securing Australia, but not just Australia, any sort of nation around the world, if you took private security out of the equation, if you look at things like shopping centres, sporting events, concerts, nightclubs and all the rest of it, we simply don't have enough police and military to cope with what would be required. And the reality is we don't want police and military fulfilling all of those roles. So if you took private security out of the equation, correct me if I'm wrong, 
but pretty much everything would come to a grinding halt. And then on top of that, if you don't have a certain level of professionalism guiding the people who are fulfilling all of those roles, then surely things just become anarchy. Absolutely. Chaos. I totally agree. Totally agree. All those stadiums, all those um, public events, um, it's the security staff, whether it be the the manpower security or the electronic security that sits in and around that that are being used by the security teams and law enforcement. Uh, Without that, as you say, it would be chaos. Um, People wouldn't go out. The events wouldn't occur. And um, it would become a pretty boring lifestyle for uh, everybody, whether it be in Australia or around the world. Uh, we are critical to every Bruce Springsteen concert, to every NRL game, every, every AFL game, every Easter show that, uh, that runs through this country. Do you think the average person recognises that? I, th- I, th- I think there is a change over the years, um, if you look back maybe 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, um, the the private security sector was completely siloed away from um, the police force. I think people now see the two working closer hand in hand um, and sharing information rather than keeping it within themselves. So I think the awareness to the public is there. Um, they're, they're seeing the value in private security. Um, more so with with the with the information sharing with the technology that's out there, um, and I think that will continue to be stronger as well. Do you think the industry understands the importance of the role it plays? I mean, I know ASIO does as the peak body, but do you think the industry in general understands the crucial nature of the role that it plays in keeping Australia functioning? Well, I think largely yes. The bigger the bigger companies. And those smaller companies growing into the mid mid range, yes, because they are actively involved in in the industry. Um, there'll be some smaller, uh, and like in all industries, smaller businesses that have just got the blinkers on and only worrying about what they're doing in their patch. But largely, I'm pretty, I'm sure the the Australian security industry is fully aware of the role that they're t- playing in the uh, Australian security picture these days. Yep. I think as decisions um, to actually purchase security uh, in a lot of cases are done due to an event. Uh, it may be a criminal activity at a premises. It may be an insurance reason, um, a move or other event. Because of that event, um, I think the industry, the people that um, you know, on the electronic side that install um, those products, they know about that event, that event that's occurred um, to the end user. Um, so they they do see the value um, in in what they're doing. They do see um, that what they're doing will make a change um, to the property or to the end user they're protecting. Mm. And the reality is, in in years gone by, the manpower area of the security was the the watch the night watchman. Yep. He was unseen. He was providing a service. Uh, but over the decades, that role has emerged to being very much customer facing. Uh, you go into any of the CBD buildings today and there will be a security officer there um, in the entry foyer. Uh, he'll be have his uniform on, whether it's badged f- by the, the company that, it, that he's representing or whether the, the building he's in, potentially being the concierge, but, he, but also being seen by all persons coming in and out of that building as being a security presence. 
uh, a potential go-to person if they've got a concern. Uh, so we're no longer the night watchman. We're actually very much front f- focus facing the customer. And when you go to the airports now, people know that their security officer is at the front of house. The first thing they do when they go through the airport is they, they engage with the security officer. Yeah. And when they get a good experience going through that process there, that builds the reputation of the security industry. And largely, everybody that goes through this security screening at airport has, I wouldn't say it's a wonderful time, but they, it's an efficient and uh, it's professional and it's as quick as they can get through this. So we're very much the front of a lot of things these days. And, and I guess yeah. just, just on that, expanding on that, the... Accept, acceptance to the public is, is much more greater with um, uh, everything in the media in terms of terrorism, in terms of criminal activity. Um, every, um, everyone in the public has a, has a mobile phone and has a camera, so they're all reporters all of a sudden. So there's a, lot more, there's a lot more awareness out there. Even though statistically crime has come down over the years, um, we're a much safer world than what we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, the awareness is, is, is much greater and the respect to those um, professional um, uh, professional players in the industry um, that do the bag searches, that, that do the airport checks, um, that s- stand in a building, um, the, the public are aware of them more and they see them as individuals that really are protecting those people and those assets. Yeah, well, it's interesting because that brings me to the sort of my next point about raising professionalism in the industry and and the role ASIO plays in that. Because if we look at how the dial has moved over the last 20 years, probably longer than that, probably 30, getting close to 30 years now when licensing was first introduced um, into Australia around clubs and pubs back in about 1989, I think it was now, in the days prior 1989, and, and you two have probably been around the industry long enough now to remember this, the industry really was seen as a last refuge for the unemployable. It was rent-a-thug. Um, and then as we introduced or saw the introduction of licensing, that brought in stricter standards and all the rest of it. But we still seem to some degree to have an element of this legacy mindset of, oh, security or you know are a bunch of heavy-handed door babysitters what is ASIL's role in shifting that needle as far as introducing professionalism and how far do you think we've come oh that's a, a really good question um and it probably at times a difficult one to answer because I, people don't see what Asia are doing every day by day. The, the members of the public don't see what we do. Um, largely, a lot of our members don't see what we do, but we do do a lot. We, we, we've been at the face of uh, trying to um, consolidate training for the industry uh, with uh, John Fleming sitting on a number of committees uh, because there's so many stakeholders involved in the security industry now. The, you've got the providers, you've got the regulators, you've got the governments, whether it be the state or federal, you've got the training organisations, you've got uh, industry groups that represent the end users. So there's so many players in this game now. Uh, Asia is the, the industry input to that. Uh, and if we're not there, 
all of these individual stakeholders will have their own opinion, their own ideas and go off on their own tangents. So part of our role, uh, and as I say, people don't see it, is trying to pull all of these people together, and it's bloody difficult to be honest, but get them together, try and get everybody in the same tent so we can have meaningful conversations and start to help people you know, where we support all of these people because they've all got good ideas but they can't have independent ideas of each other and so part of our role is to try and pull all that together into heading in one direction uh, you know it, will it happen in the next 12 months to 24 months no it's an ongoing thing and it may take decades to achieve some of the goals that the association wants to achieve but you know, recently in February we had a, a strategy day and, and the, the Asian strategic plan is not something that the board and the employees dreamt up one Friday afternoon on drinks. Um, you know, we had industry stakeholders at that. We had counter-terrorism police from New South Wales. We had representatives of Asia. We had representative Australian Federal Police. We had representative of the regulators from a number of states. We had representatives of, of uh, member companies. We had representatives of Asia itself. So our strategic plan, as we put it together, was based on bringing as many of these key stakeholders together so that we can understand each other and start saying, hey, that's not a bad idea. Let's see how we could get there. National licensing is one of these things. It's been banging on. You mentioned that licensing came in back in the 80s. I'll probably be pushing up daisies by the time national licensing comes in, but at least the conversation's being started with all of these stakeholders. And we are constantly pushing that with every stakeholder when we, when we get the chance to sit with them. I'll just um, uh, add to that the recently introduced National Police Alarm Response Guidelines. So that was a work in progress um, of Asia with all police jurisdictions over um, uh, more than 10 years. Um, so it's so a long time in the making. And that that was released July the 1st, uh, 2018, um, with, a, with a 12-month adoption um, period. Um, and that um, it, it sets guidelines for... Uh, alarm uh, uh, providers, it sets uh, guidelines for um, the end user, um, the monitoring station, um, and, and it raises that professionalism. So uh, just talk about a monitoring station for, for a second there. Whilst there's been Australian standards in place, um, 2201 Part 2, the guidelines actually state that um, the, um, the system must be monitored by an accredited monitoring provider that meets that Australian standard. Um, so Asia was the key driver in, in um, uh, getting all the jurisdictions together, um, creating and um, uh, creating that guideline um, together nationally um, and now it's now it's being released. Okay. Just, just, just another way of um, Asia... Um, uh, playing a key role in, in standards and professionalism. And John mentioned standards there, and standards are not law. Standards are just a, a guideline, a benchmark, you know, for people to work, work to or work towards. Uh, there's no legislative requirement other than the guideline, as John said, for the Australian response, gui uh, response guidelines, uh, where there has is a requirement to have a graded centre. But the association develops where there's a standard that's missing the estate the estate excuse me 
the <laughs> association uh, develops their own codes of practice. And as a member of uh, ASIU, that's part of, part of your membership is a requirement to adhere to those codes of practice. We have a code of practice for the cash in transit industry. There's no standard around that. It's the, the, the individual providers have d come up with their own ways of providing a solution. And you've got the Australian Bankers Association who are users of these things and all that sort of stuff. We put a code together. That code has then taken off to the, the member companies who provide that service, the, the, the representatives of the banks, and I know John was heavily in, involved in those meetings there, but the group got together and the end users have gone, hey, what a great idea. Now everybody's got a benchmark to start working towards. And there's no ends, ifs or buts now. And so that's been agreed to by not the industry and by the end users. And that was us putting it together. We've got uh, a new one coming out for patrols. There's a standard for patrols, but that's uh, AS, what is it, 40, 421 is many years older. And the, ch the world of patrols has changed. And so we've got a code of conduct coming out shortly, which once again, the members have been actively involved in putting that together. And so there's multiple codes of practice that the industry, the association puts together to assist the industry and to bring everybody along the same path to provide the same level of quality. Okay. So, look, security is a work in progress. It's, it's never finished. There's always more that can be done to try and improve the industry, increase standards, uh, benefit the end user and so on. I guess having heard a little bit about what you've been working on, one of the most common things I hear in the industry is, well, what does ASIO do? You know, and we've answered that to some degree. Uh, they're really good at taking my membership money, but what do I get in return for that? So tell me a little bit about ASIO strategic priorities moving forward. What is the plan for the industry and what is ASIO going to be trying to do? Uh, not wanting to sound critical of anything or everything, but um, as I mentioned earlier, it's very difficult for us to, um, to make tangible what the association does. However, part of being a member of the association is engaging with the association and, un and reading the magazines, reading the newsletters, attending the breakfasts, going to the briefings, and get, be given the knowledge and the opportunity. So all of our members know we have a WHS platform. So the, the smaller operators aren't out there building their own or buying their own. It's been designed for the industry by the association. It's given to our members below cost. We lose money on that. Uh, we've got our insurance program. We've got all kinds of relationships with various providers that, that provide solutions to them at discounted rates, but to me one of the core things that we've got is our industrial relations area. We, we work in an industry where with manpower businesses and awards and interpretation of awards and uh, employment of a lot of people, some at the high end, some at the low end, where industrial relations, if you're a big company that's great, you've already got a department that manages all that stuff for you, but if you're a small employer, you need a go-to place. So you can go off to a lawyer and help them, but what you're going to end up doing is explaining to the lawyer at your cost what the industry actually does, what the award asks you to do, and then ask for advice. So after you've given them the watch, they'll come back and they'll tell you that it's for quarter past four. At least with the association here and Chris is in the building at the moment, 
He's been in this industry for 30 years. Mm. He knows all the pitfalls. He's, he's seen all the scams. And he's a go-to, to me, for the smaller manpower members, a wealth of knowledge that can save, save their life, save their business. Other things we do, as I said before, it's our job to be one of the stakeholders amongst the many stakeholders. We have to be the voice of the industry. Sometimes people may not say, think that we're, we're the voice is the voice they want, but we have got to look at these things strategically. And that's part of our role is to be there. Now, does every member and every alarm installer out there on the street see the value in that? Probably not. But believe me, if we weren't out there having those discussions and trying to drive it, those individuals, their life and running, running their business may be a little bit more complex and difficult than what it is. The guarding industry could end up finding themselves with a minimum six-month training course um, to, to get their guards up and running as a basic Cert to security officer. Uh, so people don't see that, but we're the ones that are trying to pull reason together for the industry. And, and we were looking at potentially a six-month training course for security officers. I don't know what they were going to be doing in that six months, maybe a lot of watching movies and streaming Netflix. But, you know, when you compare that to the UK where it's a four-day course, yeah. and we've now pulled that down, hopefully to 130 auditable hours. Now, auditable hours is not face-to-face. That is face-to-face and online. So we've taken away, we've, we're trying to pull that together to make it an achievable course to deliver what the regulators require to give the basic requirements of a cert to security officer, knowing full well that the training really starts after you get your licence. Yeah. And you cannot train everybody to be the expert at everything in security. You get your basics, you get your job, your employer then trains you about what you do. So where, as I said, it's difficult to make that tangible because at the end of the day, it's the regulators who put out the broadcast to say, oh, it's going to be 130 auditable hours. Yeah. But that's only because we were there driving it to get to that point. And when they say, and these are what the, uh, the core modules are going to be, Yes, great, they'll get the pats on the back, but we're the ones from the industry that know what they need to be and we're the ones that drove to get to that point. So I'm probably waffling on there and it is difficult, but there's a lot of things in the background that are are intangible, other people will take the credit for, uh, but if we're not there fighting the good fight, we could find ourselves in a lot more trouble. You know, we're pushing for this national licensing. We've been pushing to, to, to rid you know, certain visa holders from holding licences in certain states so that they can jump the border and come and work in another state without proper training. We're we're constantly lobbying certain regulators about the use of ABNs, Um, constantly doing that. One of these days, something will stick. And, you know, if you're in a jurisdiction where... You're, you're, the, the company can set up all their employees as an ABN and you're trying to play a clean game, you're, you're hiding to nothing. And who's fighting that fight for you? In the background, Azel and Brian and Chris and, and the rest of us, we're having meetings with regulators. We're flying in the state. We're having conversations with these people, trying... And it's fighting bureaucracy is a difficult thing, but at least the message is getting out time and time and time again. 
what do they say? Tell them once, tell them twice, tell them three times, and eventually they'll start to listen. Sure. And being being, being the go-to association for all those key stakeholders gives our members a, a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of information at a single at a single point um, or single area. Um, whether they need assistance with licensing, whether they need guidance, industrial relations, as you mentioned earlier, Kevin, um, for business of any size it doesn't necessarily mean a, a small business or a medium business even the larger businesses the fact that all of our members can come to one location um, to get those expert advices um, to get um, uh, knowledge from a lot of stakeholders in, in within the association within the industry but also outside of the association um, uh, you know if you if you attend our breakfast brie briefings um, uh, you know, there was um, the, the recent one um, in New South Wales. Uh, there was someone, uh, there was a speaker there on um, payroll tax, and the lady there um, was giving all the information about payroll tax and um, who's you know, thresholds for payroll tax eligibility for pay payroll tax um, and some other criteria. And just that 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 advice um, uh, is is invaluable to um, sure. a business of any size. Yep. So what do you foresee as being the major challenges for the security industry moving forward? Well, I think one of them is, is still the skills shortage, um, in particular on the technical side um, and the sales professional side. I think um, we, we need to get another generation through um, uh, on, on the technical side. As, as a trade, um, if you look at uh, kids finishing school or, or nearing end of school, um, they're still not seeing security as um, as one of those recognised trades, um, so, and they end up going to the traditional trades, the electricians, the, the plumbings, the, the bricklayings, the building, etc. Um, I think, and then years years go on, we, we don't get those kids coming through the apprenticeship program. Um, then the outcome of that is shortages um, in in the technical area, and I think I think. We still need to work on that. We still need to promote that, um, and that will take some time. We need to promote that through um, the schooling programs, the career advice um, programs, and so forth. So, once once we get that through, the, um, uh, that will uh, assist the, the not only the, um, the the current security companies, but just the overall growth of the industry. We um, our, our growth rate has always been um, at CPI or higher than CPI. Um, for a number of reasons, but I think a lot of a lot of the public, um, whilst they know a lot of what we do, there's a lot more that can be done if we have the right skill sets over time um, in, in place. Um, so I definitely think that's a challenge um, today. Um, and I'll just touch on one more, um, which uh, Kevin mentioned earlier, and that's national licensing. Um, I mean, I have, I have a driver's license in my wallet. That driver's license allows me to drive a car anywhere in Australia um, and with security it's completely different I need it's state based so I need a state license for Victoria I need a state license for New South Wales and um, for WA and every other state um, both at an individual level and also at a company level um, number one that that adds unnecessary cost to whether it be the business or to the individual um, number two we're in a world where we all work cross borders. Um, you know, the internet age was, you know, it kind of started 30 plus years ago. We're, we're well past that. We're well past the communication age, the 
we we do jobs interstate all the time. Um, so why why can I drive in that other state with my same license, but I can't sell an alarm or advise someone on alarm or install an alarm with that same license um, that I have in in the state that I reside in? Um, it's, it's it's not as simple as it sounds. It's a challenge. Um, it, it's a it's a long term challenge. Um, uh, and we'll get there one day. But it's a challenge, surely, for federal government only insofar as, and this is something you can weigh in on, Kevin, because you've had a fair bit to do with this, but, I mean, it, if if the federal government wanted it to happen, there are plenty of mechanisms there via which they can make it happen. There's no uniformity here across this. We've got the Department of Weights and Measures, or whatever it is in, in Tasmania. You've got the Security Licensing Enforcement Division in in New South Wales, which is the police. You've got the, the licensing services division, which in Melbourne is the police or Victoria. Then in Queensland, it's the Office of Fair Trading. In South Australia, it's something else again. In Western Australia, it's back with the police. I mean, the thing is just a higgledy-piggledy mess. I agree. Um, from my perspective, there, there's got to be stages with all of this. So with the recent review of the uh, training package for manpower, the whole purpose of that is to align that training package across all states and not having each state having their own package, uh, which added complications. So if you can get national training the same in Queensland and South Australia, WA and the like, at least now we've ticked off that box. So it doesn't matter what what jurisdiction you're in, you know the training's been the same. Yep. Whereas prior to that, the training's been different albeit all the states have signed off and said, yes, we agree with what's gone through and it's all been signed off. We now know that some of the states are sitting back saying, oh, yeah, we agreed with that. However, we want to make a few of our own changes. So the mm. battle continues to try and pull those states back in line so that we can contain that. The next part is, as you say, you've got politics involved. You've got departments of fair trading. You've got police departments. You've got various instrumentalities at state level managing these things. So... It would be easy if all the states were looking at, or sorry, all the police forces were looking after security because at least then you've got one go-to in each mm, state. Common mm. body. And yes, from a Commonwealth perspective, but hey, in Australian politics these days, ministers and prime ministers and premiers are changing really regularly and, mm. and, and are we on the radar for all of these sorts of things? They come into office, they hang around for three years, maybe more, uh, some don't go, come through the next election. The minister, ministers change. The, the whole, the whole out, the whole um, environment of the political is not as stable as what we would like it to be. Because it's a long conversation, and if ministers are changing regularly, you've got to go back to the beginning and start again. Because they take their staff with them, their staff disappear, and you've got to start that whole thing again. It is a challenge. However, things will occur. There has to be a catalyst. Hopefully it's not a catastrophic catalyst that is the driver for this. But is this, uh, look, we're coming back to the debate now around sort of, you know, ASIL as being the industry association and the value of being a member of an association. But if we have a look at other industries like the Australian Medical Association or the Society of Engineers or whatever it may be, when the AMA decides that they, or the Australian Medical Association decides that they need changes to legislation around medicine, there is a voice that goes to government and petitions on behalf of the entire industry and 
not that you want to force people to be a, a member of an association, but the stronger the association is, the more voices it represents. This is my limited understanding of it anyway. The greater pull you have with political powers that be, because you represent a significant voting block. And let's face it, whether they want to admit it or not, there's two overriding rules in politics. Rule one, get elected. Rule two, stay elected. And unless we can move the needle as an industry in one direction or another with regard to either of those outcomes, getting elected or staying elected, no one's going to give a flying hoot. And and the only way we can do that, uh, from my perspective, is if the industry body is strong enough to be able to go to the government and say, hey, we represent... 30,000 or 40,000 or 50,000 voters, and unless this happens, it's going to cause you issues. Yeah, that would be great. And no, have we done that? Not in as uh, a bold way as you've put it there, but we're constantly contacting um, uh, politicians. We get opportunities to sit with politicians. Uh, we take. We don't go to politicians with a a list of complaints and problems because it's not their job to sit back and say, oh, guys, you've got problems. Let's see how I can fix your problems because they don't want another another list of problems. We go with them with concerns and actions. If this is, this is happening, this is what could be done to alleviate that. So we give them the answers as we go. Unfortunately, and, it, and I suppose at my age you become more cynical, you have these conversations uh, the, conv- the the outcome of that is, is we'll get back to you. Mm. And despite the number of letters and reminders that they were going to get back to us, you hear nothing and then the minister changes and moves on somewhere else. And, mm. you know, we have... And again, it comes down to what's the sexy thing? Yep. Now, is security sexy in the public's eye or is the medical health of the population sexy? Mm. So you're going to get more drive with medical health than with the sexiness of a security guard standing beside a bank. Yep. We're not as sexy as we could be. That's what I said. The catalyst could be a catastrophe. Yep. We haven't had the catastrophe, but the catalyst could be the catastrophe. And all of a sudden people will wake up and say, bugger me, maybe we should have listened to these people a lot earlier. Now we need to go to them and say, guys, we know you've got the answers. Come and help us. I don't want it to be a, catas- a, a catastrophe, but that's potentially, that's the challenge. And, and it would always be a challenge. Um, I don't want to sound too cynical on that, but, you know, getting back to the challenges facing the industry, we've got the regulators and dealing with them. We've got the regular, well, not, not so much the regulators, but the states bringing in new laws to potentially handcuff people. And you've now got the labour hire licensing laws come out in Victoria and Queensland. Mm. Mm. Um, South Australia agreed that, uh, hang on, we've already captured you people under the security licensing regime, so we know where you are, we know what you're doing, we know all of these things about you. But with labour hire licensing, we're actually dealing with a totally different government department in those states that has no relationship and no cross-pollination with security. And... It's, so they just keep moving forward. So now if, if you're running a business in both those states, you have to go through security licensing and you have to go through labour hire licensing. For those people who aren't aware of what's been going on with this, can you explain a little bit and tell us a bit more about that? Well, the labour hire licensing in the states, and it will potentially become a federal issue, is it's the 
there are a certain number of industries where the industry and the employers in the industry have been seen to be probably negligent with the way they've um, actually employed and, and managed the employment of their, their, their employees. And so you've got the cleaning industry, you've got the security industry, you've got the horticultural industry, and I think there's another one there somewhere along the line where, where employees are being um, manipulated uh, they're not being paid properly uh, if they're working in in a situation where they're working uh, in regional areas. You know, there's 27 to a bedroom to keep the costs down and everyone gets a bag of rice uh, to eat. So the government in those jurisdictions is trying to identify and capture those people and put some rules, and for all the right reasons, yep. for all the right reasons, because in people are being abused as at the low level, in immigrants particularly, uh, as we see with Fair Work, with the way they, they're capturing companies and um, franchises these days. So this is for the states to actually start to gather the data around who the labour hire li uh, companies are, uh, what those companies have got in place, how do they house them, how do they feed them, how do they um, transport them, all of these situ all of these things that they need to know so that at least they've got the starting point to go out and say, is this being done correctly? Now, in the security industry, we go through one department, go through the hoops, give them money independent upon the size of your business. It could be $10,000. And then the next day you're running down the road to give not dissimilar information to another government department. So you've, if the government departments could actually cross-pollinate and say, hey, this guy's doing this, can I have that information and we'll build a database collectively, that's not happening because it's too hard. It's too hard. Once again, it's you know the labour, the the governments are doing the right thing for labour hire employees, but so there's that regulation that keeps hitting us and knocking us back. And then getting back to the challenges with the stakeholders that we deal with, uh, the you know the recent ANZ CTC reports coming out shortly, and it talks about the relationship with all the stakeholders, including the sec the security industry. Uh, as a whole, uh, and we a representative of part, keeping in mind, Asia really only represents its members. Mm. We don't represent security companies who are not our, not members. Mm. Those security companies who are not members actually benefit by our actions. So they're the, they're the real winners because they, they don't contribute, don't get involved, don't pay. But every, every time we have a win, they have a, have a free, free kick. Um, so... The stakeholders are in there. What's what what the end of town constantly talks about, and we can't argue, is that particularly on the manpower side, we want better trained security officers. Agreed. Can't argue that. We want better supervision. Can't argue that. Yep, you got to have that. We want better recruit. We bet, want better recruits coming in as providing solutions to you. Can't argue that. As an industry and as an employer, cannot argue that one bit. But the commercial reality is those three things that the end users are constantly screaming for are the first things that are stripped out by the companies when it comes down to negotiating price. Mm. So I want all of this, but I'm only prepared to pay you that. Can you do that? Yes, I can do that. But then in the background, training goes, quality of recruitment goes, and supervision disappears because they're luxuries you can't afford when you're forced commercially to such a low low point so 
to me, that's a huge challenge. A yep. huge challenge is that commercial reality. We agree 100% with all the stakeholders that that is something that needs to be done. Not a problem. But the commercial reality is it makes it very difficult for the industry to actually deliver all of that when the price point is pushed down regularly. And then when that price point is getting pushed down, then you find you put a roadblock in the way of a small provider. He needs to keep his business going. He will find alternate ways of breaking the rules to get around that. And next thing you know, you've got people like Labor Hire coming in saying, you're employing your people, but you're not paying them properly. You're not accommodating them properly. You're not transporting them properly. And your bloody and fair work come in. And so we get forced into this position where some of our, some of our industry go and do the wrong thing to, to maintain their business. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge challenge. You mentioned quite a few things there that sort of are, are pitfalls for the industry as far as people not paying properly, people not treating their workers properly, people not uh, offering the right sorts of training. I, I guess the question that arises out of that is if I am looking at using a security provider, how do I know that I'm getting the right company? How do I know that I'm getting the right level of service? Well, do you really know? It's, it's, like, it's like everything. For one... It's easy for me to say this as the president of the association. Go onto the industry website. Have a look. We've got a list of all our members there in their regions and you get information there, contact details and the like. Contact the association and that has been done. We have had end users contact the association saying we are running a tender. Can you give us some guideline on who, what we should be looking for? And it comes down to, so what we do then is we can give them names based around, you know, the region, the size of the project, and that type of thing. It's, it's not our job to do that, but we'll, we'll give end users some assistance. But really, at the end of the day, the end user's got, it's like if you're building a house, you don't just go down to the first builder who's got a builder's licence and assume the fact he's got a builder's licence, he's going to do the job. You've got to do your own background checking. You've got to make sure that that company's liquid. You've got to ensure that company really does exist where they say they are down the street. You've got to make sure that they're licensed. You've got to make sure that all the, that they're carrying the right and the correct licence. Uh, again, it's a difficult thing. You can drive down the street now, and I did last week, a van doing all kinds of security, Google the company name, Google it against the sled. That's, that van, that owner of that business has no security licence and he's out there doing his thing. So how do you pick a good good security company? First stop, come and talk to us. Second stop, do your own due diligence. You, you can't, you've got to do your own due diligence and pick the company of the, that's the right size and right structure for the task that you have at hand. Yep. Down, download, I'll just expand on that. I mean, download, there's a consumer guide a consumer version of the um, alarm response guidelines on, on the electronic side. Um, it's accessible to the public, so download a copy of that. Ask a security provider if they're aware of it, which they should be aware of it. It's been out since um, July the 1st last year. Um, if they're not aware of it, I mean, I wouldn't be choosing them firstly. Um, ask for a security audit on, on your premises as well. Um, get some advice. Uh, the retrobrill companies in the industry they, they want to do the right thing for the industry. They want to do the right thing, of course, for themselves in terms of their company and their employees. 
but they do want to do the right thing by the industry. So by, by, by the users asking for, um, for a provider to come in to give them some advice on, on, on their security needs, um, th- those right companies will, will, will do that in, in most cases free of charge as well. I'm not talking about large complex sites where, where a consultant must get involved, um, but, but in most cases they'll, they'll do that um, free of charge but to, um, in their own uh, mind that they feel they're, they're contributing um, to the industry and to the professionalism um, of, of the industry. The guidelines also state that, um, which, which has always been an Australian standard, um, but security systems must be maintained. Now that's now part of the guidelines, um, so, so it's in there in force. Um, so a, a lot of users don't realise that um, uh, security systems, once installed, need to be maintained just like your car does, just like your laptop does. You know, your, your computer is on, on the net, uh, a network of some type. Um, it has, um, you know, both security patches and it has um, software enhancements. Security systems are exactly the same thing. Um, so when you're talking to the provider, firstly, see if they offer a maintenance as part of their solution. Um, and if they don't, talk to them about that because that is um, in the guidelines. So they need to adhere to... Um, adhere to that as well as security providers and those um, as Kevin mentioned um, you know being a member of a recognised security industry association such as ASIAL again the guidelines state that you need to be part of a recognised security or the security provider must be part of a recognised security industry association licensing um, you know we, we talk about the need we spoke earlier about our challenge and our want to have a national licensing Today it's state-based. Now that's the law. So we will we will chair and we will um, you know go into bat to to try to change that to national licensing. But today it has to be state-based. So what that means is, if I'm in Queensland and I want to do a a, a project in in Victoria or in um, in New South Wales or in WA, I need to have the relevant licensing today, the state-based licensing today. So when choosing a provider, ask for copies of their license. Their license should also be um, on any marketing material they have. It should be signed, written on their vans. It should be on their brochures and a, and a bunch of other things um, on their website, and so forth. So, um, but but ask them as the user because a lot of I still think I believe a lot of users um, not so much in the heavier um, uh, commercial space. Um, but but on the smaller side, I, I believe there's a lot of users out there that still don't actually realise that there is a licence in place for security providers at a company and an individual level. I think if you're if you're an end user and you want a PowerPoint done in your home, I think the majority of end users, if not every end user, knows that they need a licensed electrician to do plumbing work. The majority of end users know they need a licensed plumber to do to do security work. I think that's basically that's predominantly because it's low voltage. A lot of them don't realise that that security provider company and individual uh, must be licensed. Um, so um, be be aware of that. Um, number one, and then number two, ask the question. Um, you know, well and truly before um, you accept anyone's um, proposal. Okay. Yeah, get reference checks and follow up. Absolutely. Follow up the references. Absolutely. Right. 
So let's finish up with this question then. Where is the industry heading in the future? Where do you see all of this going? We've spoken about national licensing. We've spoken about um, you know where we have come from as far as professionalism standards are concerned. Uh, we've covered a range of topics, but where do you see it going? The, the industry at the moment, gee, back in the good old day when, when manpower was the night watch guardman and, and electronic security was in its infancy, the... the, the co- common under- belief was is that eventually manpower will disappear. Yep. Well, it's been, you know, decades now where manpower is going to disappear, but manpower is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. It's not disappearing, it's growing. Uh, so manpower will continue to grow. Uh, it's it's going to be driven by the counter-terrorism threat and the realisation by a lot of people that they really need to step up their security, whether it be for the counter-terrorism. But but when one building steps up its level of security and the buildings down the road don't, they're now at risk. So everybody starts to need to lift that up. So I see that growing. Um, Looking at the electronic side, it's been a huge change shift over in the last 10 years with... You know, what you would understand and and see as being the bigger go-to businesses, there's been a lot of change in the world of ownership and with that comes the direction that they're heading in, which has opened the door to a lot of good small to medium businesses to step into the industry. Great quality product exists in Australia, designed and developed in Australia, good good business people in Australia. So the doors open in the last 10 years for uh, a lot of entrepreneurial, high quality uh, technical companies to actually grow into the market where now, um, what you would have seen as the mainstay 10, 15 years ago, you don't hear about them anymore. They're, mm-hmm. they're not as active as they used to be. They've changed their direction of, of, of marketplace and, and the, the world has opened up. And that's a good thing because it's given the, the customer on the electronic side a huge amount of opportunity for, for, vari- for variance. And I see that as another growing area, particularly with those smaller guys because they can give technically a lot better solution than some of the bigger, older, you know, understood experts that have been around for the decades. So I think all in all, I see the, the, the industry's got a good position. We've got problems. Uh, On the electronic side, I still see the IT industry and the data cablers and the electricians. They don't see themselves as being um, part of our industry. However, with IP technology now, they're they're plugging all kinds of devices in because they can buy them off the shelf from all of their IT and and, and data cabling suppliers. And so they head off down this track. Um, So the industry's growing. We've just got to capture those people in our net. Uh, the regulators have got to capture those people in our net. Mm. But all in all, as far as the industry is concerned, I see it as continuing to grow strongly. Absolutely. Well, to come to your point about people not understanding uh, themselves as being part of the industry, a very short story. I was in Vegas um, uh, a year or so ago for one of the big events over there and I happened to be talking to one of the surveillance and, and gaming managers at the casino. Um and he said he was he was talking to a guy down in their main surveillance control room 
and the gentleman who he was talking to, who was an external contractor, said to him, oh, can I have the Wi-Fi password for your security? And he's like, there's, there's no Wi-Fi down here, mate. We're a siloed area. And he's like, no, there is Wi-Fi. And he's like, no, there's not. There's no Wi-Fi. Trust me, I'm telling you, there's no Wi-Fi here. And he's like, turned his iPad around and pointed to it. And he's like, well, I'm telling you, there's, there's Wi-Fi for your network down here. And they've looked at it and they're like, well, holy hell, what's that? So they've then gone out into the car park and they've walked out probably four or five rows out from the casino into the car park and they're still getting a Wi-Fi signal. They've tracked it back down to the server room in the main area and it turns out that one of the electricians that was doing work for the IT department, not the security department, had put in an access point in the server room because he couldn't be buggered going through security all the time to get mm. clearance to get into the system. And they had no idea what was going on. And when they backtracked it to this guy and said to him, what the hell were you thinking? Do you understand all the security implications of this? Because he wasn't from the security side of things. He had no idea, mm. had no clue what he had potentially risked and opened the security up to by putting in an unsecured wireless access point. Well, I suppose that brings us to the next bit where what is the definition of a security solution these days and where does cyber security come into this because mm. cyber security you don't have to have a police background check or a security license to work in cyber security and one of the biggest risks in cyber security is the the trusted insider as that yeah. person was yep. he's a trusted insider and as a result he left everything vulnerable so there so in the cyber security world and we do talk with cybersecurity associations. Again, that's a long path there, but we have had discussions with them about where do they see themselves sitting. They do admit that their members are putting in security solu electronic security solutions as a, oh, while we're here, we can do this as we're here, but they admit it and they know that, and they know that they're not licensed, but we're having conversations with those people moving to the future. So, John, the, your, your view of the future? I, th I think we'll see further regulatory changes, um, strengthening professionalism, strengthening standards, strengthening codes. Um, it will happen, I mean, it may happen because of a major event, as you're talking about earlier, Kevin, um, but I think it will just happen because of the awareness um, of the private security industry that wasn't there 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And as more things happen around, um, or more publicity happens around terrorism at, at a global level, um, that filters through um, at a local level and the government um, are seeing, I mean, the conversations that we're having as an association with the government now, um, we, we weren't having that 10 years ago. Um, so they are listening. Uh, uh, you know, in, in some areas, they're slow to, to, um, to respond or to react, such as national licensing, um, but they are listening and they want to collaborate with the security industry. Um, so with that said, um, they see the importance of the private security industry um, and I think we'll have tighter regulations around the, the, the private security industry more so than what we have today. Um, we could have said that 10 years ago to today. Um, 10 years ago, the guidelines weren't in place. They're in place today. 20 years ago, um, um, licensing were just coming out or 30 years ago. Um, so. Every 10 years, we'll see, we'll see that leap and, and it will continue to leap. I think on the technology side, um, integration between platforms will become stronger and stronger, um, you know, between 
and access control and building management and CCTV and so forth, but they will they will do a better job at their core functions, which is um, uh, security, um, but they'll become more of a business tool as well, just like an ERP is for a business, um, just like a CRM is for a business, and, and, and like any other IT platform. So security will be there as a platform, as a business tool, as much as it is as a security tool. I think um, a couple of other, I mean, on CCTV, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see more megapixels, um, uh, cameras with high definitions and so forth, as we've seen um, that adoption over the last, um, probably more so the five to seven year um, area where, where the increased megapixel. But outside of that or separate to that, what I think we'll see is what can we do with those two megapixels that are in the camera or that the camera's producing? Okay, so two megapixels or 10 megapixels, it's a pick a number, um, it doesn't really matter. Um, that's, I mean, if it's two megapixels, it's two million pixels. So the, the information and what you do with every one of those pixels is getting better and better and better through things like artificial intelligence. And that's going to help um, the system and the businesses make better, smarter decisions, be it security related or other business um, tool um, related. Um, lastly, biometrics. I mean, biometrics, we've, um, you know, we've had that for a good part of 20 years um, through fingerprint, through facial and um, retina and so forth. Um, that that's going to be an interesting one. I think this is um, watch this space, and I mean that from a regulatory point of view. We we've seen the recent case of an unfair dismissal um, due to um, an employee um, not wanting to give up his biometric data, being his fingerprint, um, as the as the user installed um, fingerprint readers in their premises. Um, uh, to my understanding, he he won that appeal. Um, uh, of the unfair dismissal. Um, there's also lawmakers in California now um, figuring out what's happening with um, biometric data and who owns that biometric data and who doesn't own the biometric data and where where, where that ends. So that, that, that will also be an interesting one um, in the future. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you today. And uh, remember, ladies and gentlemen, if you want more podcasts like this one, go to www.aziel.com.au. The podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify. uh, It's on Blurberry uh, and all the other sites that you'll find good podcasts. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time.